All right. Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Great to see you all today. <clears throat> I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're rounding the corner of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. It is the final chapter of this great little first epistle by Peter. This morning we're going to be considering verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to begin first by reading our text, uh, beginning there in verse 1. We'll read it once all the way through, and we can carefully consider each of these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, hear now the words of the living and true God. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now these uh, four verses that Peter gives us is hinged on that main verb in verse 2. It's the word shepherd. Shepherd, that is the main focus of these four verses. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, as time and history and culture would have it, we know very little about the role of a shepherd. And before we can truly understand what it means to shepherd the flock in a spiritual sense, we have to understand the analogy itself from a physical side. In first century Palestine, uh, shepherding was a common profession. Um, or first century Palestine was a common profession. Here in the 21st century, it is quite rare. And most Christians have little to no knowledge about the role and the duties of the shepherd. So let me fill you in on some of these gaps that would have been well known to Peter's audience. Let me read a little clip from a book um, titled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Weldon Keller. He writes the following. It is no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. Now in case you didn't know, um, sheep aren't exactly the smartest group in the bunch. A sheep on its own can do nothing except get himself into trouble. Without someone guiding them, sheep are essentially utterly helpless. And so consequently, someone had to care for the sheep and thus came the role of the shepherd. Um, it's one of the oldest professions in the world. It began all the way back with Abel and continued throughout the biblical um, narrative with men like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David was a shepherd. Here's how these men cared for the sheep and how Jesus, who is the good shepherd, tends to us. Number one, sheep have no good sense of direction. 
God has created most all of his animals um, with an uncanny instinct to find their way home if they become lost. I'll never forget when I was a kid, we had our cat jump out of the car door on our way to a vet appointment. And we lived, I don't know, five, six, seven miles from the vet. And we waited, calling out his name, and eventually left. And sure enough, the next day, he found his way home. But if sheep become lost um, by straying into an unfamiliar territory, oftentimes they become very disoriented and are unable to find their way home. And this is how we are also like sheep in the sense that we are also lost and we don't know our way home. In fact, Jesus highlights this in the parable of the lost sheep. And why Isaiah the prophet wanted to describe the condition of spiritually lost man, he said in Isaiah 53, 6, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Being born spiritually dead and blind, we just keep wandering further and further away from the sheepfold and the good shepherd. It's only when that good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, we read earlier, calls his sheep by name, and they hear his voice that the sheep then are able to follow him. <clears throat> and if you need any further proof that sheep are prone to wander, listen to this story I found. In July of 2005, a herd of 1,500 unattended sheep wandered from where they were grazing and one followed one another jumping off a cliff in eastern Turkey. How on earth did this happen, you ask? The shepherds neglected the flock for all of one hour. As they went to go have breakfast, left the sheep to graze the field. And when they returned a short time later, they could not believe their eyes as all 1,000 500 of all of the surrounding villages' sheep had wandered off, following each other, one by one, leaping off the cliff of about 15 meters high. The first 400 of them fell and died to their death. Incredibly, the remaining 1,100 sheep were saved because the first 400 broke their fall. Another example of this, and this really highlights just how crazy it is, comes from a personal experience of mine. In 1993, when I was 18 years old, I traveled for six months to New Zealand. And uh, I went to go work on a program where I worked on a variety of different farms. But I'll tell you, you can go to any farm or any of the next locations without seeing herds and herds of sheep. There were sheep absolutely everywhere on these two islands. At the time, there was a ratio of approximately 15 to 1 sheep per person. 15 sheep to every one person in New Zealand. It's a massive part of their agriculture as they raise and slaughter approximately 40 million sheep per year. And the way one of these farms went about doing this was rather interesting and didn't really speak to me until much later, but They'd use one specific sheep they called, has anyone heard of it? Judas sheep. Um, a Judas sheep was specifically selected, castrated, male sheep. And his job was to lead all the other unwitting sheep to what they would call the killing floor. And unaware of what was about to happen to him, the sheep would blindly follow the Judas sheep 
and they would go down the slide, um, at which point a trap door would then open. The Judas sheep sneaks out the other side. It closes behind them, and the unsuspecting group of sheep are trapped, and they are slaughtered. So like sheep, we also can be easily led astray. We can become disoriented and easily confused. In fact, um, in Matthew chapter 9, after Jesus had proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, preaching in all their synagogues, healing all of their diseases and afflictions, it says in verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Another thing that points us to our need for a shepherd is sheep not only need to be protected, but they need to be guided and provided for. Guided and provided for. They need to be led to green pastures. They need to be shepherded, and who goes after them does not stray. He will even carry one on his shoulders if one becomes hurt. A shepherd protects his flock with his rod, the sheep are essentially a defenseless animal on their own. Think about it. They can't scratch. They can't bite. They're not very good at running. When they're under attack, they usually clump together. That's why David says in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A good shepherd always went before his flock, searched out the land ahead of them, making sure that there was nothing there that would bring harm to the sheep. They had to look for areas where a sheep was likely to fall over. And once they did, they would fall over onto their backs like a turtle and because of their legs unable to stand onto their feet. After trying for a little while, eventually... The scared sheep give up and die unless the shepherd comes and picks them back up and puts them onto his feet. Another thing that should be mentioned is sheep spend most of their life eating and drinking. That's pretty much all they do. But again, left to themselves, sheep will indiscriminately eat both healthy and poisonous plants. Unlike animals, they don't know the difference between poisonous plants and good ones. So there's that. And then they are also known to overgaze and to ruin their pastures. If they are not led by a good shepherd, they'll just keep continuing to eat right down into the dirt before they would venture off under their own and move right over there where there's plenty of green grass for them to eat. So they also need to be led to clean water that's not impure or totally stagnant. If they're brought, uh, say they're brought to a river to drink, fast-paced water scares them. They need to be led, as the psalmist said, beside still waters. Most animals are good about smelling water from the distance. They can almost feel the moisture as it carries on the, on the breeze, but not cheap. They need to be led to still waters. And so we, like sheep, have a great need for shepherds. A shepherd who is compassionate, who's loving, who's watchful. A shepherd who protects his sheep, who makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. Sheep need constant attention. 
They can get separated from the flock. They can't find their own water. They don't know what foods to eat. They eat the wrong foods. They can't protect themselves. They can't run. They can't bite. And they can't scratch. And while for each of us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not have any other want. God, in his sovereign goodness, has put over us under shepherds that he calls, in verse 1, as elders. These are godly men within the church whose calling it is to shepherd the flock of God among you. And I would just say at the outset of this that those of us who are shepherds and those who hope, Lord willing, one day to be a shepherd, to certainly um, pay close attention to this passage, um, as well as those who are being shepherds, all right, as you must also pay close attention to this passage as well, so that you are to hold us who shepherd accountable. And that is your responsibility. In other words, there's something valuable in this for all of us. <clears throat> now, where are we at now in this epistle? After some great teaching in chapter 4 about how the church is to respond to unjust suffering and persecution that it was facing, Peter in chapter 5 now turns to the pastors of the church in their great responsibility to shepherd the sheep of God. And that's why chapter 5 begins with that word, therefore, therefore, or because you are suffering for righteousness' sake, therefore I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. Now in order for us to unlock the treasures that are in these verses, I want to ask four basic questions that are focused on what, who, how, and why. Our first question, you'll see on the back of your bulletin, is what? What is the calling of these earthly shepherds? What is Peter's calling to them to do here? What's he after? Let's notice, again, verse 1. Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. So, this is the heart of it. That's what Peter's exhorting. It's a very uh, specific section of scripture. He's talking to elders, and he's talking about them shepherding the flock of, do of God. Now that term here to exhort indicates an urging or an appeal. It is a term you're probably somewhat familiar with. The parakleo sounds a little bit like paraclete which is the Greek for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Parakaleo literally means to call alongside. Or in the general sense, to encourage someone in a certain direction. And that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's encouraging these elders, as we're going to see in a moment. Now in verse 1 he says, I exhort the elders. Who's an elder? Well, there are three terms in the New Testament you need to keep in mind. Elder overseer, pastor. All three of those terms are used interchangeably and refer to the same position. This particular term, elder, emphasizes one who is spiritually mature and is a title used going all the way back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament had elders. Meanwhile, the term overseer, that um, emphasizes the function of leadership, someone who's overseeing. He uses overseer as that description. And then the term pastor, Ephesians 4.11, emphasizes their function as a teacher. He, the pastor, feeds the flock. 
So in other words, every overseer is an elder. And every elder is a pastor. It's the same office as far as scripture is concerned. And what is the elder's primary responsibility? To feed, to teach, to shepherd the church. To God, the purity of the church against error and sin. To bring unity within the church. To handle issues that arise in the church That's when it's seen as an overseer. But first and foremost, an elder is a shepherd. It is their responsibility to do everything the sheep needed to be done. It was their responsibility to keep the sheep from getting separated from the rest of the flock. It was their responsibility to make sure there wasn't any uh, Judas sheep coming around and masquerading as a teacher only to lead the other sheep astray. It was their responsibility to make sure they were led by still waters and green pastures. It was their responsibility to make sure that if a sheep was wounded, that they encouraged them, sued them with oil, and cared for them until they were healed. It was their responsibility if a sheep had fallen over on its back and were in fear of death, that they were to come and pick it up and carry it for them as long as it needed to be carried. It was their responsibility to make sure when sheep were under attack that they were defended properly. All this was and is the responsibility of elders. So Peter writes to them and to me and to all elders and pastors everywhere, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And he includes in this exhortation some compelled motivation for leaders to shepherd. First, please notice how the respected apostle humbly identifies himself as a fellow elder. He says in verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. So as if Peter's coming alongside you, saying, I know what it is to have a heart for God's people. I know the calling. I understand, and he's emphasized with the task as one who truly understood it. Peter's fought the same kind of enemies. He's had the same kind of battles that you, the elder, are fighting. So Peter comes here with the motivation of identification. He identifies with you, the elder, a fellow elder. He understands what the shepherding challenges were. He understood. So he exhorts them because he identifies with them. I exhort you as a fellow elder. And then we see a second motivation. He moves it up a notch. Notice again verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. All right, now this is motivation by authority. Okay, motivation by authority. Peter exhorts him through his apostolic authority now. All right, you ask, how is that authoritative? Well, because Peter was a first-hand witness to the sufferings and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness um, to the passion of his Lord. In the Gospels, we saw Peter was in the garden as the Lord sought his heavenly Father in prayer. 
We saw in John's Gospel, he was with the Lord when he was arrested. And then you'll also remember, Peter was outside in the courtyard as Jesus went through all those mock trials. In fact, it was Matthew 26, 58, you remember, that said that Peter followed, but he followed at a distance. Remember that? He was following Jesus, but he was lurking around out in the courtyard. He could hear, he saw the accusations being brought against his Lord, but he was falling at a distance. Now what's interesting is the New Testament doesn't tell us that Peter saw or was there for the crucifixion. Right? We remember going through this. Only John is listed of the twelve. Alright? But it could well be that this is Peter's testimony that's saying, I was indeed there. It could be. He might have returned and again watched it, uh, witnessed it from a distance. Here he says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I witnessed the Lord's sufferings. Um, it could have been his sufferings in the garden. As it was there, he agonized, sweating those, those great drops of, of blood. It could have been his suffering in the garden as he experienced that betrayal on that, on that night. It could have been his suffering he experienced throughout the trials as the guards mocked him repeatedly, uh, beat him, scourged him. But it's also possible Peter could be saying, I was there. I, retur I returned. I saw the sufferings of Christ. We don't know. It is interesting. This word here <coughs> used for witness um, is kind of a twofold idea. It's the uh, Greek word uh, martus. Um, interesting enough, it's actually where we get the word martyr from. Um, it means one who personally saw and one who personally testifies to what he saw. One who saw and one who testifies to what he personally saw. It's translated into witness, but it comes from the Greek word known as martyr. Why did they refer to it as martyr? Because so many people who witnessed for Christ, ended up dying as martyrs. The word came to mean one who was killed for witnessing. So a witness is one who saw and one who proclaimed what he saw. In Peter's case, the term is synonymous with an apostle. These were the qualifications of being an apostle. He saw the sufferings of Christ. He was commissioned to proclaim the sufferings of Christ, to evangelize and to speak the message. In Luke 24, 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, speaking to the apostles, verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And we know that that was the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is so they could be witnesses effectively in the power of the Holy Spirit. To say I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ means I saw it and I've been commissioned to proclaim it. 
He saw it, and he was to proclaim it. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, that was Peter's focus. What did he focus on? He focused on the sufferings of Christ. Why, you ask? Because it was just so hard. It was so hard for the Jews particularly. For the fact, for them to understand that their Messiah had to suffer. In fact, that continues to be a stumbling block for them. And so Peter kept on preaching it. Even in this epistle, do you remember what he said back in uh, chapter 11, verse 1? Talking about the prophets as the spirit of Christ within them predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He's always talking about the sufferings of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. In chapter 2, verse 24, By his wounds you were healed. In chapter 4, verse 1, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, You share the sufferings of Christ. So in over and over again, here and elsewhere, Peter talks about the suffering of Christ because they were so basic to the gospel message, yet so hard for the Jews to accept. So he's exhorting them, not only from a humble perspective as one who identifies as himself being an elder, but he also exhorts from a position of apostolic authority as one who firsthand eyewitnessed the sufferings of Christ and one who was called to proclaim it. And then there's a third motivation that he includes in his exhortation. Halfway through verse 1 he adds, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And we'll call this a motivation by anticipation. An eternal reward and glory awaits those who faithfully shepherd the flock of God. This looks ahead to the return of Christ. When he comes in his full expression of glory, when he destroys all the ungodly and rewards all his own, establishes his kingdom forever as a new heaven and a new earth become one. And so Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. So question number one was the what? What is the calling for under shepherds? Peter says, feed the flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. All right, let's move to question number two. The question is who? Who are we shepherding? Who are we shepherding? Notice it again in verse two. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. So this should be pretty clear to everyone. The elders are shepherding whose flock? It says shepherd the flock of who? God, right? It's God's flock. Let me see if I can unpack this a little bit more. When our Lord came to earth, he descended to purchase the church. He descended to purchase the church. Acts 20, 28 says he purchased it with his own blood. 
And then Jesus ascended to empower the church. So he descended to purchase the church with his blood. He ascended to empower the church with his spirit as he gave gifts to men to shepherd his flock. And the fact that Christ purchased that flock with his own blood emphasizes just how precious it is to the Lord. You are bought with a price. It doesn't get any more serious than this. You want to shepherd the Lord's flock? The Lord says, they're mine. I bought and paid for them. So shepherd them well. So elders, shepherd the flock of God. It's not my flock. It's not your flock. It's God's flock. This is as serious as it gets. Lord says, Nick, here's my flock. Care for them. Love them. You have one primary duty, and that is to feed them. Feed them. It's not to entertain the flock. It is to feed them. The flock. He says, shepherd the flock. And will you notice verse 2 again? Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. God only has one flock. And some of it is among you, he says. It is portioned out among the shepherds. Each shepherd has a part of God's precious flock. But it's one flock. Notice down in verse 3, the phrase, those allotted to your charge. Every elder has a portion of God's flock allotted to him, allotted to his charge. And as shepherds, we are called to feed and to lead and to care for a portion of the flock God has allotted to us. This is another reason why a church, even this size, that continues to grow, <coughs> will continue to need to disciple and to raise up shepherds, gifted, called men of God, whose calling on their heart is to shepherd, to feed the flock, to teach God's word. Elder's role is to teach, to shepherd the flock. And this is the responsibility of the shepherds of the church. So number one, what are we to do? We are to shepherd. Number two, who are we to shepherd? The flock of God among you. Third question is how? How do we shepherd? And in verses two and three, Peter provides both positive and negative answers. Positive and negative answers. In verse 2, he starts with the positive. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. All right, let's stop right there. What does that mean? Exercising oversight. It translates from a single Greek word, epi, skepeo, which means to have um, scope over, to look upon, and to care for. The noun is where we also get the overseer. The overseer from. Um, the first part of the word, word, epi, it means to get yourself into a position where then you can scope over the whole flock. 
The second positive comes at the end of verse 3, but proving to be examples to the flock. So that's a very interesting combination, those two. On one hand, we're to get in a position uh, where we're able to scope over the whole thing, and it's the idea of sort of getting the entire picture, getting into a place, maybe high up so we can see everything around us. Think of a shepherd climbing up onto a, an area where his flock, and he can see over all the flock. He can see the upcoming hills and danger that's coming around them. So that's on one hand, we're to be uh, scoping over, and then the other hand, we're to be so close to the flock that our lives are an example that they can follow. So you don't just sit up high up in your castle or hill, never able to be down low enough to see how you live life and deal with the things that come in this world and are able to be an example. So it's not just leadership from on high, it's leadership from within. The shepherd had both tasks. A shepherd, like I said, will often find a high place in the pasture. He could get up on a rock, get the full scope. He could see what was coming. He could see invading beasts. He could see a sheep who's wandering off out of the fold. But before that day was over, he would be off the rock and he would be down amongst the sheep and he would be able to find the ones who had a thorn in their little foot. Right? They're the ones who weren't eating the green pastures. The ones who were about to give birth and needed special care. It takes both. It takes both. You have to have the scope where you're looking at the big picture. You also have to be in the trenches, proving to be an example to the flock. That's the balance. So Peter says that's the right way to shepherd, exercising oversight and to be an example. Now he gives us a couple of the wrong ways. But not to shepherd, back to verse 2, how not to shepherd, not, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So here Peter gets specific about some of the perils of shepherding. First danger Peter mentions is shepherding under compulsion, it says. He says, don't ever do it under compulsion. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. Yeah, but didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Yes, actually Paul did say that. <laughs> but what Paul was saying was he has a divine compulsion. A divine, a Holy Spirit compulsion. A divine calling to preach the gospel. But what Peter means is, is we should find a divine compulsion sufficient and not have to be forced to do this as work. And let me tell you something. If you need someone to push you all the time and you're not motivated by the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, the call upon your life, the urgency of the task, the condition of the church, and the needs of the world, if you've got to have more than that to motivate you, then you're not called the shepherd. <laughs> you're, you're not called. Peter says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily and according to the will of God. He'll put that divine 
calling on your heart. You ought to be so motivated by the call of God on your life, it becomes a divine compulsion. Paul says in Romans 1.15, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I love that. Paul's greatest desire was to go to Rome in order for him to preach the gospel. To feed God's sheep who are in Rome. You think somebody had to egg Paul on to go and preach? <laughs> no. <laughs> he said, for my part, I am eager to preach. So if you're going to shepherd the sheep, you better do it under divine compulsion voluntarily according to the will of God. Second negative reason Peter gives is at the end of verse 2. He says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sordid gain must never be a, a motive for shepherding. It's right to pay those who feed the Lord's flock, 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14. Paul lays that out. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, he says, Elders who preach and teach the word well should be considered worthy of double honor. The laborer is worthy of his wages. But that's never to be the motive. The motive. You never want to be motivated by personal financial gain. What's in it for me? 1 Timothy 3, 3 Qualifications of an elder, not to be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Titus 1.7, to the overseer, must not be fond of sordid gain. But what does that mean, that term there, sordid gain? It goes beyond just seeking wealth. It speaks to the shameful acquisition of it, i.e. stealing, i.e. fleecing the sheep. And let me tell you, this is so rampant across the globe with just one scandal after another. I remember reading an article a fellow pastor friend of mine sent me and a uh, certain church um, had reported back in 2014 to have been missing $600,000. Um, and they didn't know where it went. And um, just like, I don't know, a year or two ago, a plumber was called in to fix a leak in this church's building. And as he pulled away the tiles behind the uh, leak of the toilet, 500 envelopes started falling down that was inside the wall, all dated of checks and money orders and cash from when you know it, the time when they said it was stolen. So somebody in that church hid a half a million dollars in the wall as they fleeced the sheep. And I can't even imagine the horrors of judgment that await those who did this for a sordid gain against God. Churches now are more like multi-site business models. You can go in and buy your own franchise. You can get up on a stage. You've got false prophets, false teachers, charlatans. They are frauds who masquerade as if they were servants of God. Isaiah 56, 11 says this, And the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied, and they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain. 
And so Peter says, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Eagerness. And then thirdly, the third prohibition, notice what he says in verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Here's a third abuse you see in ministry. A shepherd who lords over the sheep is, is in a domineering fashion. It means to sinfully um, dominate over others. The word lording is a very strong word. Literally means to dominate someone or to completely domineer a situation. It's not patiently lo- what a patiently loving shepherd does. No, this is um, an oppressive kind of leadership. Leadership by intimidation. So Peter says these, those allotted to your charge to be a loving example. Don't lord them. Serve them. Feed the flock for those from whom he's purchased with his blood. There's a place for authority, but it's a, a gentle authority. You come in low and meek. There's no place for petty tyrants. There's no place for seeking sordid gains. And there's no place for shepherds serving under compulsion, not from God. We close <coughs> with the final question, why? Why shepherd? And why the reward of shepherding? That's what Peter says in verse 4. He writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As under shepherds, we serve the sheep, but first and foremost, we seek to serve God and to bring him all the glory. And someday we will all stand before who? The chief shepherd. <laughs> he's the why. The chief, he's the why. He's the reason we serve. Hebrews 13, 17 tells those overseers who keep watch over your souls, we'll give an account. We will give an account. We will all have to one day give an account. Someday, all of us. But those called the shepherd, God's flock, will have to give an account to how faithfully we, we served him by serving his sheep. Also, please notice Peter's description of our Lord. He calls him here the chief shepherd. I love that. The chief shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Zechariah 13, 7, he's called my shepherd course we read earlier in John 10 he's called the good shepherd Hebrews 13 20 he's called the great shepherd then back in 1 Peter 2 25 you remember he's called the shepherd and guardian of your souls so he's really the shepherd over all other shepherds he is the chief shepherd and Peter says when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the un fading crown of glory. And this is describing the earthly shepherd's reward, but it's really not about the crown as much as it's about what spiritual reality it speaks to. If you look at the descriptions of the crowns, for example, in 2 Timothy 4.8, it talks about the crown of righteousness. 
First uh, Thessalonians 2.19 talks about the crown of joy of, or of exaltation. Um, this crown could actually be read as the unfading crown. That is glory. It speaks to the eternal glory that we will have in Christ that will never fade away. It will never fade away. And you think back to chapter 1, Peter talked about this in verse 4, that we would obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. Peter was looking forward to the return of Christ. And so should we, realizing at that time the chief shepherd will appear and that eternal glory, that full expression of his glory that we will share in, will be in relation to our faithful service to him. And so what are we to do? We're to shepherd. Who are we to shepherd? The flock of God among us. How are we to shepherd? We're to lead them, feed them. We're to be an example to them. Why are we the shepherd? Because God has promised in Christ an eternal reward, which we will enjoy in glory with him forever and ever. I hope this sermon has blessed you as a sheep or as a shepherd. If you need prayers this morning or God has put a calling on your heart, we'd love to pray with you or, or talk with you or after service. At this time, if you'd like to please stand we sing the song of invitation, Hymn of Heaven. Thank you. Please, Jay, Chuck, son, and Donna, let's pray for them.